Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Scholarly Perspectives episode with Dr. Aaron Phillips. And I'm your first host, Marla. And I'm David. Today, we'll be discussing a paper titled Neuroprosthetic Baroreflex Controls Hemodynamics After Spinal Cord Injury, which was published in Nature in January 2021. This paper was recommended to us by Asia's Education Committee. And our guest today is Dr. Aaron Phillips, an assistant professor at University of Calgary in the Departments of Physiology and Pharmacology, Clinical Neurosciences, and Cardiac Sciences, which, Dr. Phillips, I think triangulates your research interests almost perfectly. So well done to Calgary for that. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I uh, I think my bio had assistant professor on there. Uh, I was fortunate to get my promotion and tenure this year, so associate professor. <laughs> Huge congrats. Thank you so much. And I think a lot of the listeners to a scholarly perspective episodes will understand what that means. Um, <laughs> please carry on this line of research. So we're diving right in, given the format of this podcast. Our first question here. Uh, given our audience, we're going to zoom out a little bit. And some listeners will be less familiar with working in these large multidisciplinary teams where you can produce a translational paper where you demonstrated integration of preclinical and clinical approaches within a single project. So can you talk a little bit about the team behind the paper? Yeah, for sure. And I, I can talk about the team and I guess What's critical to the team itself is that, you know, if, if you want to accomplish a translational research project in my lab, we're fortunate to have a translational team. So we have a full preclinical group spanning, you know, wet lab scientists with immunohistochemistry, in vivo biology, um, cardiovascular physiology, and, and a team of engineers and then we have on the same side, you know, uh, neurosurgery residents doing their PhDs and clinical scientists um, and clinical trial coordinators. So the team is broad, but most of the people on my team have a common goal. You know, a lot of them have, you know, been touched by spinal cord injury in one way or the other and um, are really passionate about autonomic function and cardiovascular physiology. So we try and recruit the best folks that span those spaces and put them together on a team that's all committed to, to spinal cord injury research. Yeah, I'm happy to elaborate on any of those features, but that's that's kind of the team makeup. And I, I think it's one of the nuances of my group, but you're seeing more and more groups do it where, uh, yeah, we focus on trying to cover the full translational spectrum where we can do mechanistic research, understand pathways, circuits, targets, and then engineer solutions and then test them in humans and try and get them close to clinical trial if, if they're working. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I love about this project is that it was in a way a demonstration of engineering approaches that was within the research that was being done. No, I was just going to say kind of running in the same vein, you know, in rehab, especially in spinal cord injury, we're so used to that multidisciplinary approach and it's kind of a main part of what we do, but you know this is this is kind of a different lens of that. Looking at that from the research lens, can you talk a little bit about you know what are some advantages to presenting you know research information in this type of way? 
some of the challenges that you face kind of approaching your project uh, in this multidisciplinary lens? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, the, the challenges, this project was one of the smoother ones, you know, it got actually published and we were really honored that it, that it was reviewed positively in nature. So this was one of the successful ones, you know, the ones that did have more challenges, maybe didn't show up in the same vein or show up at all on people's radar. <laughs> so it was pretty good. We had a great team, uh, really focused. I mean, it was really well positioned to be fair, this kind of discovery, right? Like 2017, we published, I think, like the first case study. Uh, Chris West and I from UBC were co-first authors in JAMA Neurology, just showing that like, one person that was implanted for motor function, like maybe this actually does have some hemodynamic effects. And then at the time I was starting my new lab, I had, you know, a fresh startup budget. I was able to, I got a kind of like a Canadian version of the NIHR01 right off the hop here. So we had resources. We were putting together a great team. I had a great postdoc starting right off the hop with us. Um, I had started a collaboration with Gregoire Cortine, and we were, I was ready to focus on this for like five years and really understand how this works. Is it a new spot? Can we harness the existing spot? What works better? Can we do it in closed loop, which I thought was necessary to stabilize blood pressure? You really need kind of that closed loop control where you can stabilize blood pressure to a set point or else it's not going to work as well as just turning it on and off. We, it was just this kind of perfect timing where everyone was positioned really well and committed. So it went fairly smooth. You know, I'm trying to think of really big barriers, but we had a really committed, awesome team. And, uh, you know, I guess the biggest barrier was maybe securing some of the long-term funding for the clinical trial that came out of this. Um, but luckily we got great institutional support that were really committed to launching the clinical trial stemming from the first person and we're doing that now. So, you know, grant aid and grant grants and all that stuff, you know, 10% success rate a lot of times. So, you know, it wasn't always straightforward to convince people to move the array up to a brand new spot and start stimulating and how high the blood pressure go and all that stuff. So maybe some, maybe convincing to move into clinical trials as fast as we were was a bit of a barrier, but uh, that's in the past now. We got buy-in and uh, yeah, I'm excited where it's going. So this brings us to the topic of demarcating between motor and autonomic stimulation. So do you think some of the previous work with motor helped with that translation? Definitely, definitely. I mean, a lot of this tech was repurposed originally from pain, right? Which which facilitated the transition into spinal cord injury. And that that helped a lot because the hardware was was there already, at least in a kind of crude way. Like that tech's probably 60 years old, 50 years old, but you know, we were able to turn on circuits in the cord. We knew that in humans. So that helped a lot. And then the fact that it was done already in humans and there was some proof of concept, some safety, some idea of safety um, really helped. And, you know, I think it was critical. People had already heard of it. It wasn't this harebrained idea that, you know, might not work. We knew it had some capacity to activate spinal cord circuits after they were disconnected from the brain. And, you know, could it be repurposed even further to tune it for autonomic function? So it wasn't, I guess, as much of a of a reach as just starting from scratch. So that's a good point. 
Yeah, I'd love to get into the details of the placement and then the closed loop. But before we do that, you have gone to the point of putting one of these in a person. So can you talk about expectation management there and the conversation that was had about the difference between a hemodynamic implant versus a motor? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we currently have three people implanted here in Calgary in the hemodynamic hotspot. The two of the participants actually have two arrays in or, or have had two arrays in. One's done with the trial now. Then there's more coming. We have a next implant February February 18th, I think. So they're implanted over the lumbar sacral area, kind of classic positioning also. So we can still try and cover both areas. Based on our knowledge of, you know, fundamental biology that came before me, but then we've remapped it, you know, with just thoracic stimulation, it's not expected that there's going to be walking again, so to speak, because the placement is above where those lumbar uh, spinal segments are that are really going to be contributing to ambulation. So for sure, we have those expectation, those expectation discussions with the participants. And it's honestly goes through part of the recruitment process, right? Because the inclusion criteria for our trial is significant hemodynamic instability. And I mean, I, I'm probably preaching to the choir to this audience, but a lot of people that we run into that we screen for the trial with significant hypotension, orthostatic hypotension, blood pressure dysregulation, they're more focused on getting that fixed before they foray into standing and starting to walk. In fact, that's kind of probably scary to a lot of folks is to go and do standing and walking without their blood pressure controlled first, right? That's going to predispose to low blood pressure and not feeling so well. So it hasn't been a big barrier. Most of them are, all of them are really targeted that, uh, the blood pressure side of things first. Um, but yeah, for sure, we're clear that without the lumbar stimulation, it's unlikely that there's going to be a lot of ambulation or even standing for those folks. Yeah, it's great to hear that the uh, multi-site has been approached. And I think also listeners should be ready for um, the use of implanted and transcutaneous spinal cord stimulation concurrently. Uh, but if we can now, you can take the reader into the results of the study. And can you talk a little bit first about the hardware and the iterative process that you went through to design and manufacture the hardware? Yeah. So the biggest thing we kind of, there were, there were a few different things. I'll kind of briefly touch on them. We can elaborate on little aspects here and there, but one thing I'm proud of in the paper, because this is kind of like 30 papers in one, but one thing I'm really proud of in the paper is we developed a model of orthostatic hypertension in rodents, which was really cool basic science-wise, but opened the door to a lot of translation. Like there's probably 30 years or so of research on autonomic dysreflexia, the high blood pressure, and there's a few well-established models. Honestly, I was, we tried everything for hypotension because once you had that model, you could deploy all those tools that have been kind of tested in the dysreflexia world and redeploy them. So we started with tilting animals and turning them upside down for periods of time and then changing position and blood draws and all sorts of things. And then um, we finally devised this kind of, it's a lower body negative pressure, which is a fancy way of saying suction. It's a small amount of vacuum applied to the lower body. And it just beautifully mimics orthostatic hypotension after spinal cord injury. That was really big for us. And and the first model of orthostatic hypotension in spinal cord injured rodents. And then from there, we were 
ready for prime time really and could have studied a lot of different things but wanted to focus on epidural stimulation since it was a promising preliminary therapy that was even starting to be translated as we touched on developing the model spinal cord injury and, and sympathetic autonomic dysfunction or the blood pressure circuits we wanted to establish the specific disruption that happened. So there's a set of neurons, right, that are responsible for blood pressure control that come out of the brainstem called rostroventral lateral medulla. You know, I've been studying that area for a long time and it's a passion of mine. It's really like the furnace of uh, your cardiovascular system. It's a subset of neurons there and they go down the spinal cord and then they control, they're actually pre-sympathetic, but they control the sympathetic nervous system. We wanted to show disruption of those neurons and how severe the disruption was in our model. So we used some virus-based tracing tools, which are cutting edge and getting even more sophisticated over the time. And we labeled just those descending neurons that control blood pressure. So just those and showed a complete disruption of those fibers in our, in our model and that they were related to the severity of the orthostatic hypotension. We did a ton of circuit level work after that to understand exactly how stimulation was working. And I'll just touch on one. We called this area, it might be your next question even, I'm not sure, but we, we found this area called the hemodynamic hotspot. And we named it that because it's almost like, you know, your motor topography of your brain where, uh, you know, this is controlling your hand and this is controlling your finger, tongue, et cetera. We found this area in the in the spinal cord that underlies blood pressure control, and we did it two ways. One was functional, so we measured blood pressure, and then we actually stimulated electrically, epidurally, each spinal segment independently, all throughout the spinal cord, and we measured how high blood pressure went when you stimulated. And we found that these this hemodynamic hotspot, so the bottom area, the caudal area of the thoracic cord, was very sensitive to stimulation in terms of elevating blood pressure. And then we also uh, used what I'm going to initially call retrograde tracing, but it's it, you inject a virus that infects neurons in the periphery that project out to blood vessels and control blood vessel tone, which is really where blood pressure is controlled. And then we quantified where those neurons were emerging from in the spinal cord. We quantified it segment by segment. And we saw this beautiful convergence of this Gaussian distribution, normal distribution, where it was all centered around that hemodynamic hotspot, both from a functional perspective and from that retrograde tracing anatomical perspective. And we felt really confident with those two converging lines of evidence that we had a new, a new spot and really proud of that because that was a completely novel discovery just on the fundamental neuroanatomy that's controlling blood pressure. And it makes sense, right? Like the, those vessels or those neurons project out to the vessels of the gut. And the gut is really, the gut and the legs, but the gut is a dense vascular network. About 40% of blood can be stored in those capacitance vessels there. So a huge amount of potential for controlling resistance in a big network of blood vessels and therefore controlling blood pressure. But that was a novel discovery. Hardware-wise, we did some mechanistic work again because where you stimulate is a big deal. Um, one of the biggest issues patients have is battery life and charging of devices. And that's coming from pain field, spinal cord injured field. People don't want, the battery life has to, has to last. 
And so knowing exactly what structures we were targeting would allow us to put the electrodes closest to those areas and preserve the charge of, of the battery and make it more sensitive, maximize sensitivity. So we discovered through some of the mechanistic work that the device or epidural stimulation was primarily activating those hotspot segments through the dorsal afferents. So we, we needed to have our electrode design specifically targeting the dorsal afferent anatomy of those segments. And that's not trivial. We collaborated with um, Stephanie LaCour, who helped us develop an implantable electrode array that could be used long-term or short-term that targeted at six electrodes, and it stimulated all six of the dorsal afferents over those three spinal segments. She has a long track record of developing biointegratable epidural arrays, and we tapped into her pipeline to develop those arrays. She was an instrumental part of this paper. One methodological question before Marla jumps in. Sorry, I have to ask. Did you consider um, mapping with stimulation of the RVLM to work top down instead of the also with the bottom up of the the viral tracer? Yeah, yeah, we did. The, so I'm super interested in that. We're doing some of that in the lab now. For our model, like more complete injury, severe contusion, kind of mimicking what you get in like a Asia A, B, kind of complete spinal cord injury, stimming from the brainstem wouldn't be as effective as stimming below the injury just because you've got disruption of those descending fibers already. So you're kind of building on a on a structure that's uh, damaged already. So we we tried to focus on stimulating the intact available on injured circuits below the level of injury, but we're very interested in both recording and stimulating in the brainstem because I think there's probably some application in less severe injuries to potentiate traffic across the injury site specific to, to autonomic functions. Yeah, I really appreciate you kind of going over the hemodynamic hotspots because that was something that really stuck out to me as I was kind of reading through. And I think, you know, you touched on you know, the translational aspect of your research. And, you know, for me, looking at this from a clinical point of view, taking into context, you know, what type of injury the patient has, like how they're presenting, I think it's really important, you know, these hemodynamic hotspots could really alter the way we're sort of thinking about these blood pressure issues. So I think it's important how you guys explain that in the paper and that like initial Part of the paper where you're sort of discovering that is actually super, super important. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, obviously the goal of what you guys were looking at was primarily orthostatic hypotension, but if you think there could be any application for this in autonomic dysreflexia, which you touched on a little bit and how you might kind of approach looking into that. Yeah, for sure. And then the, the hemodynamic hotspot stuff, you know, I smile because it's, it's such a cool discovery that Everything in the lab, you're always a little nervous. It's going to translate, right? There's variability between species, et cetera. But we've now done this so much that, you know, the first surgery, we stimulate in the surgery, right? And we kind of do some mapping in the human surgery. And first patient, high fives for everyone. Hotspots consistent. Second patient, hotspots consistent. And then uh, last summer, we did some work on a DARPA contract in Brian Kwan's lab and tried it out in pigs. Again, hotspot consistent in pigs also. So it's so rewarding to see that capacity and how consistent that 
function is. So yeah, that that's a that's a really uh, rewarding piece, I guess. Of just show, it's so consistent that hemodynamic hotspot, really rewarding. Dysreflexia, we so the paper was published in January twenty one, as you guys said. And we were already working on the dysreflexia story, actually. My first grant was on the long-term effects, and we wove all this in, right? Closed loop, acute stem, and then we wanted to do the long-term stuff. So we are getting really close to publishing a paper on uh, what happens long-term with stimulation. And uh, this is, again, in collaboration with uh, Greg Barcortine's amazing team in uh, Switzerland. The uh, long-term effects are super exciting. I don't want to scoop it, but there's reasonable expectation that there's uh, some super promising effects of stimulation long-term on promotion of plasticity that's quite beneficial to the autonomic nervous system when you're targeting those hemodynamic hotspots. So we worked on that for many years and uh, yeah, we're getting very close. It's, uh, it's really exciting. I don't want to scoop it though. I'll kind of leave it as a little teaser, but it's coming. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's exciting breaking news. You heard it here first. I think this is an opportunity to talk also about the software side and the closed loop biomimetic stimulation that you use. So, can you talk about briefly how that differs from maybe a motor stimulation approach, and then how you might tune it within autonomic? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was pretty clear from Greg Barr's. Cortine's work in the motor function stuff that the spatiotemporal aspects, so stimulating at the right place in the right timing, was beneficial for locomotion, right? You can really potentiate those motor functions by having the array activating what's intended to move at a given phase of the gait cycle. And so when, you know, we parallel that back to my expertise, there's been there's a lot of work really in the beneficial elements of frequency in which the sympathetic nervous system is activated. So the, the concept here is that the sympathetic nervous system is kind of slow. It operates around as a 10 second lag time. And so that means it oscillates at around 10 seconds. These have been studied for a while. We've published on it a lot previously outside of epidural stem, but it's, it's named after uh, Meyer, Prof Meyer, that's called the Meyer wave. A lot of work's gone into this. It's thought to be pretty healthy. So when you, when you lose it after spinal cord injury, so the, the rate limiting step in the development of this kind of 0.1 hertz or every 10 seconds oscillation is also in that rostroventrolateral medulla area. Those neurons fire at this rate, but that signal, that oscillation can be found all the way out into blood pressure. So it's driving the whole system to oscillate around this frequency. One step further, that frequency is pretty healthy for the blood vessels and it, it promotes a specific type of healthy behavior of the inner lining of blood vessels called the endothelium. And when you lose it, those, those are less healthy. There's, there's some research on that. On the same side of it, when you talk about cardiovascular implants, there was a lot of work on uh, ventricular assist devices. Remember the early ventricular assist devices that were kind of just a turbine blowing blood through the system and they had no natural heartbeats. So these people, there's papers on this with interesting titles, but it's like blood pressure, but no pulse. You can feel a pulse on these folks. And over time, there's a huge group, probably half the field is convinced that the loss of that natural oscillation in, in uh, blood flow and blood pressure is pretty unhealthy for the heart. So now they've moved into 
uh, ventricular assist devices that actually recapitulate that biomimetic element of the heart pumping. So we wanted to reintroduce, because again, that's that's lost after a spinal cord injury since it's from the brainstem. We wanted to introduce that biomimetic feature and that Meyer wave into the array and the software. So even though we're stimulating in closed loop and we're maintaining oscillations, it's in, we called it injected. In the software, we've got it behaving and kind of following the command that it always recapitulates that Meyer wave that we took from healthy animals, healthy humans. We took the healthy paradigm, how it oscillates in a healthy model, and we recapitulated that into the closed loop software. Fantastic. That gets uh, the meat and potatoes for both the hardware and the software on this. So love that. Okay. So we've got a penultimate question here. In both the animal models, it was a T3 contusion injury. And in the fellow who's in the paper, it's C5. So can you talk about injury location? And if there's going to be, if you think certain areas and injuries where maybe this will work, certain completenesses or incompletenesses where this is more or less appropriate? Yeah, we've now got a range of folks um, uh, with a range of injury levels. And usually we the main people that would want this for a treatment would probably be, you know, high level, relatively complete spinal cord injuries um, because they have the most severe blood pressure instability. So you, we can't fix kind of what's not there. So it definitely will work better in people that have the condition we're trying to treat, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, we, we think that it'll still work well enough to treat moderate levels of hypotension if they're present. So yeah, we thought about that a lot and it works best in the patients that have it. <laughs> One observation that I've made is uh, a change in the symptomology for a given lack of blood pressure control that can happen in some people where they come in, no presyncope symptoms, they have cervical spinal cord injury maybe, and you take their BP and it's just through the floor. And then you take it again and it's oscillate. The control's not there. Sometimes it's, and yet it's not expressing itself in their symptoms. So I wonder even in not, you know, this overtly problematic OH situation that right now this is a solution for, if it could still be used for like, if you will, a subclinical control problem that's not expressing itself. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of a ax I grind all the time. And, you know, we have another, we hope big paper on orthostatic hypotension. And is it a problem? Right. And I understand that. In the spinal cord injury community, there's many clinical issues that are arising, right? And it's not, if it's not a problem, it's, is, it, is it severe? Is it related to outcomes? What do you treat? There's only so many things that I think that that clinic, frontline clinician is able to dig into and solve, right? And then with every drug or therapy, there might be some other effects. But the reality that we're seeing, and we we did this every which way, population level health, we started our own survey, 144,000 people around the world were contacted. We got a big data set together. Then we looked, we partnered with uh, Rick Hansen, newly named, newly named Praxis, and dug into some of their population level health. Then we looked at humans and actually brought people in to the lab to verify how they self-reported their orthostatic hypotension. And then we... Uh, did some animal models where we induced orthostatic hypotension and looked at what happened to the cardiovascular system. And the take-home message from all of that stuff is that in a spinal cord injury population, so this isn't uninjured folks, in the spinal cord injury population, animals, 
orthostatic hypotension is independently associated to the development of heart disease, regardless of symptoms. Second finding was that people with orthostatic hypotension often don't know they have it. It's a, it's a silent condition. You tolerate it. And when you bring this up with clinicians, they often say, yeah, you know, patient X came in looking pale or gray and, but didn't thought that was just their life now. Right. And then, you know, they get on the therapy, they get on stimulation, et cetera. And they immediately feel awake, alert. And I kind of, create an analogy to the early days of hypertension. You know, we don't know if people have hypertension when you're walking around. I don't know my blood pressure right now. None of us do. But we know on the population level health, interventional studies, animal models, that it's directly related to the development of heart disease and stroke. We know the mechanisms now. And just getting the message out that it needs to be measured. It's independently associated to heart disease. So whether people think they're fine or not, we're not really good at detecting what's going on in our brains. Not a lot of, there's no, no sensory information there. So we just have the perception of how we feel, which you accommodate quickly, you get used to. So the, the we see a very strong independent effect of orthostatic hypotension on heart disease. And I think it's getting close to being acknowledged as a, a thing that should be very actively measured and treated in terms of whether it'll work for less injured, more moderate, more, more complex orthostatic hypotension. Cause I've seen those folks too. Usually, you know, T-spine might be complete or incomplete. One day they'll have OAH, one day not probably some disruption of some fibers, but depending on, you know, how their the volume and whether they drank enough water, depending on coffee, they might feel worse or better some days. The good thing about the therapy is you can titrate it. So even in the current technology that's ready for kind of clinical trial, you can still turn on and off the intensity of the stimulation to elevate blood pressure a moderate amount or a, or a, or a big amount, depending on how people are feeling. And then phase two, which we're working a lot with uh, Onward and Medical, which is trying to get this whole therapy indicated, is we're working on closed loop being deployed um, in the clinical setting. So Bio biological measurements of blood pressure, transient periods of orthostatic hypotension, the stimulation will turn on and treat that in real time, depending on the severity. So we, we're preparing for that. Um, it's, uh, But I, I think it, it's well suited to work for both moderate and severe orthostatic hypotension. It kind of, but, but it would need to be titrated. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an awesome paper. This is a obviously a very exciting area of research in our field, spinal cord injury. So without giving us too much away, can you tell us, you know, what do the follow-up studies look like? What questions are yet to be answered? What things should we look forward from you guys uh, in the future here? Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to highlight, you know, I get to do the podcast and, and and take a lot of the credit, but this is a big team. There are, I think, 35, 40 authors on the paper. And, you know, Jordan Square was the postdoc, who's a superstar um, driving a lot of this. Now, a PhD student of mine, Elaine, is coming in behind him and working just as hard on some of the long-term follow-ups. Uh, Greg Warcortine is a huge advocate of this and a big backer of everything that we're doing. It is a it's a big collaborative effort, and we're we're there's a huge group of people working on this now. After that initial gym and neurology paper, it's grown up. So um, we are working on the long term effects uh, really closely, and we're working really hard on um, getting this indicated for people with spinal cord injury. Those are the two 
biggest priorities for us now. And then a lot of basic science work to generate phase two effects or I guess test what we would do in a long-term phase two of the device and the therapy, whether that's optogenetics or targeted cell type specific stim. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Phillips, for being here with us today. Uh, we look forward to seeing kind of the follow-up work and excited. We'll make sure that we give our props to the rest of your team and uh, excited to see what you guys come up with next. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of AJA's Education Committee. The podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, your producer hosts David McMillan and Marla Petrillo, our editor Abby Fox, production assistant Jane's Concepcion, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at SCI's Perspectives Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>